If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to begin Hebrews 1 um, at verse 1 and read through to verse 14. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through to verse 14. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who inherit salvation. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this, your holy word, as it is. That your spirit would be at work illumining our minds. So that we would hear the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speak. To us by the Spirit. Help us to understand what's been superintended in the writing of Hebrews by your Spirit 
for the sake not only of this audience, but of your church in all ages. And help us to understand who your Son is. Our eternal, immutable Creator. The one who made all things and who will make all things new. The one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He who has no beginning and no end. Who experiences no succession of moments. In whom there is no change. Who is wholly independent. Who needs no one. And yet, who in great love not only created us, but saves us in the person of your Son, our Lord and Savior, our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've told you guys this before, and some of you may, may uh, well remember because you've seen it yourselves. Um, If you've gone to historic churches, some of you may remember because I've mentioned it before, but there was a time in our history where cemeteries um, were built on the church grounds. In fact, you can go to some old cathedrals where uh, people in the church were actually buried in the floor of the cathedral itself. Some folks actually entombed in the church building and, and the cemetery all around the church building. What was interesting about that is that when you pass by a cemetery on the way into the church doors, your real problem stares you right in the face all the way in the doors. I mean, normally if the church side out front, if you think about church signs that are out front, normally if you walked up to your average church today and it said, great music, great children's programs, fresh coffee and donuts, whatever, some gluten-free snacks, whatever it is, (laughs) motivational talks to to help you find and fulfill your purpose. Normally you see those kinds of signs and and you, you don't think much about them. But if you're walking up to a church with a cemetery built around it and you see that sign, you might find yourself looking at a sign that seems to you to be holy incongruous with what you're witnessing in the cemetery. When you're staring at the stark reality of the end of us all, you really realize, I'm not interested in that stuff from the church. At that moment, all that other stuff is useless. Listen, when I'm standing over the grave of a child, which I have had um, both... uh, the privilege, if you will, of doing and, and, um, and the unwelcome privilege, if you will, of doing. Or when I'm standing over the grave of a parent or the grave of a spouse, the grave of a friend. When I'm sitting with someone who's facing the doctor's prognosis that they don't have much time to live. When I'm facing parents whose kids have gone completely off the rails. When I'm sitting with a man who's lost his business. A woman who's lost her home due to an economic downturn. When I'm talking with someone who is crippled 
by depression and anxiety. When I'm sitting in front of someone whose deepest, darkest sin has found them out. In those instances, and by the way, all those things people in this building are presently dealing with. Every one of them. When I'm sitting with people in those moments, we all know in those moments that silly entertainment is no cure for any of that. Motivational talks offer me nothing in the face of that. All that stuff rings hollow to be as vain as it really is, as empty as it really is. And even in the days when all is well, that kind of cotton candy Christianity is empty and ultimately unsatisfying. I had a friend once who said that he went to his pastor um, and told him that his preaching tasted really good, like donuts or Chinese food, but it left you hungry an hour later. Wow, I hope you don't ever say that to me. But I understood the point. Listen, I might be able to, as a pastor, pile up distraction upon distraction to keep you from thinking about sin and death. I might be able to come alongside and assist you in the doing of that. You're probably already quite proficient at it. You're probably piling up distraction after distraction via TV, via various devices you have, via social media, whatever it happens to be, keeping yourself from facing the reality of sin and death. Some of you probably go to sleep with the TV on because you just can't handle the quiet moment that it's turned off. And so you come to church looking for the same distraction. And we could put together a band and a set and a sermon, if you want to call it that, that helps you be more distracted. But the charade will end soon enough. And we all know it. We all know it. Look, we were made for eternity. And so the promises and joys of this life, even the, in the moment of experiencing the greatest promises and joys of this life, we can find that they never satisfy. They're temporal things. They can't satisfy your eternal longing for which you were created. We are nearer every moment of every day to the day that we are separated from this present world. So perhaps the question to the gospel minister ought to be, what do you have for me that answers this problem? My real problem. What do you have for me when the distraction of entertainment wears off and when I must face my mortality? When the fallen condition of this world and my own body is right in front of me and I cannot resist it any longer. What do you have for me in a dark night of the soul? When I feel like I can't get out of bed and I can't see the end of this dark night and I wonder is there any hope at all? What do you have for me as I lay in bed at night fearful of the day that I breathe my last breath?
What do you have for me when I realize that the pleasures of this world, the accolades and hopes of today are fleeting, they're vanity, a chasing after the wind? See, I'll tell you what I have for you. I have the name above all names. I have Jesus for you. The eternal and immutable Son of God, the mediator, our Savior, our King. That's what I have for you. It's all I have for you, and he's more than enough. Last week, I began the second argument for how Jesus is greater than angels, how he's inherited a name that is above all names. And I said that second argument started in verse 7 and went through verse 12. The first argument that he is the name, that he has inherited the name that is above all names, is from verses 5 through 6. The second argument is through verses 7 through 12. And I handled the first part of that. And as I did, I emphasized that while angels are servants, Jesus is the king. He is the righteous and joyful king. And so today we're going to look at the second half of that argument. We'll look at how Jesus is greater than angels in that not only is he the Lord of lords and king of kings, but he is the eternal and immutable creator. And we have three parts of the sermon this morning. Here's the first part. The angels, as created beings, are temporal and mutable. You hear that? The angels as created beings, as those who have been made, those who have a beginning, they are temporal and they are mutable. They change. There was a time when they were not and they have changed. They continue to change. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second thing is that the Son is the eternal and immutable creator. He always has been. There was never a time when he was not. He does not change. He does not experience a succession of moments. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's immutable, unchangeable. And then the third point we're going to look at is the application of all this. I'll have two applications that I'm going to give you. Let's look at the first one. The angels, as created beings, begin and change. They have a beginning. They change as well. Look at Hebrews 1 and verse 7. Hebrews 1 and verse 7. Of the angels, he says. Now, who's speaking? Look at up to verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and he's going to tell you, he didn't ever say any of this to any of the angels, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Or, and again, he, when he brings the firstborn of the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, of the angels, he says, what? What does he say of the angels? He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this is a citation from Psalm 104. That is talking about God as the sovereign creator of all things. Psalm 104, he is the sovereign creator of all things. And he's picking up two emphases here. One emphasis, one emphasis is the fact that the angels are servants, they're ministers. And the son is the king, he's the Lord. The other emphasis is that the angels are created and mutable, but the son is 
is forever eternal and immutable. That's the emphasis. Listen to Psalm 104 um, and verse 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, and his, or his angels winds, and his ministers a flame, flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You, you hear the emphasis? God created all this. God rules over all this. Who did, what did he create, and what does he rule over? The angels. Now listen to what he goes on to say in verses 27 to 29 of Psalm 104. These all look to you. All that he's created looks to him. They look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. See, what God creates is wholly dependent upon the God who created it. It's created. It's mutable. Now you ask, in what ways do the angels change? Um, Well, we know of one historic way in which they changed, which is that some of them fell into sin and became what we refer to as demons. But they continue to change. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a way. They don't have bodies like us, so they're not having a physical change, but they change as beings in the fact that they, they grow in knowledge, for example. They increase in what they know. They're created beings. We, we hear and see that echoed in Scripture. In a, in a passage like 1 Peter, we come to the gospel and it talks about this being prophesied in the Old Testament and being fulfilled in the Son, this salvation we have. And it says, these are things in which angels long to look. They're just wanting to reflect upon the gospel of our great God and Savior. They're wanting to learn because they're creatures. They serve whatever purpose God has for them. Now they're creatures that are above man, Right? That's why when the Son takes on humanity, the author of Hebrews can say in Hebrews 2, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. So they're above man as servants of God, but they are servants of God. They serve whatever purpose God has for them. He created them, and he can dispose of them as he wills. They began. They experienced some succession of moments They change. Even the highest of the Lord's servants, the angels, are still merely his created servants. The angels, the prophets, the kings, the priests are all created servants. They are all changeable. They're all created. They're all fallible. Let me look at the second point. The Son, Jesus, is the eternal and immutable creator. So the angels are created, changeable servants of God. The Son, Jesus, is the eternal, immutable creator. The angels are mere creatures. The Son is the creator. Look at Hebrews 1.10. 
and. That and is connecting you back to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, which is taking you all the way back to verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? So God is speaking in the person of the Father by the Spirit. The, the, the Father speaks this way. And then verse 8, of the Son, he says, and then verse 10, and. So in other words, and the Father is also saying this. What's he saying? Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. That's being said to the Son. Now this is, so you know, this comes from Psalm 102, which we'll look at in a minute, which Jason read, I know, this morning during um, our time of prayer and Scripture reading. This comes from Psalm 102, but it comes from the Greek translation of Psalm 102, called the Septuagint, which is around a couple of hundred years before Christ. The apostles and Jesus often reference it, and it's directly quoted here, you, Lord. When you read Psalm 102, it's stated a bit differently in, from the Hebrew text that we have, but here... Um, it's quoted directly from the Septuagint, and we get it this way. You, Lord, the Son, is being referenced as Lord. He is God. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He created everything, the heavens above and the earth below. He created it all. And what he created in the beginning. They will perish. This created stuff. It'll perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will, all, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. See, he is necessarily above the angels. He's necessarily superior to them. He's necessarily greater than them because he created them and all things. He was present at the beginning. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The Son was present in the beginning. Listen to how John states this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. See, He was in the beginning. He was able to be so, as He Himself has no beginning. Therefore, he could be present at the beginning. You understand? To be present at the beginning means you have to be present before things began. He's present before things began. Therefore, he's present at the beginning. Why? Because he has no beginning. He is. He is. The, the name that we're given for God is I am. We call this God's aseity. He is, in other words, self-existent. He's independent. He's eternal. He's unchanging. God did not come to be. God is not a being that's created by another God. Neither does God create himself into existence. Rather, God has always existed as an unchanging, completely actualized being. 
a lot of language. But here's to get at your your kids ask you the question, well, who created all things? Right? Especially during the catechism, the first question for the children's catechism is, Who made you? And their answer, the little little children's catechism is, God made me. What else did God make? All things. And if you're in the toddler area, you hear this, it's great. Why did God make you all and all things? And the kids, you hear them say, for his own glory. They're trying to say glory, but they can't quite pronounce it. It's cute as can be. Right? For his own glory. He made you and he made all things. And then if your kid's smart, they stop and ask you the question, who made God? No one made God. God didn't even make himself. God is. His essence is his existence. He is. He has always been. He always will be. Further, as the Lord who was in the beginning, he created all things. Everything you see is the work of his hands. Every created thing you don't see. There are created things you don't see. Like you don't see angels. You don't see the souls of men. But that stuff is the work of his hands. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Look at Hebrews 1, verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. They will perish, but you remain. Everything he created will perish, but he remains. He does not perish. He does not wear out. He does not change. All created things wear out. They come to an end. Listen, we experience a succession of moments and we wear out over time. We, we know this because we experience it all the time. When my kids were little and growing up, um, we introduced them to R.C. Sproul, who was a man who died quite recently, um, who was a great gift to the church in the 20th century and into the 21st century. And he wrote some children's books and we would read the children's books to our kids and they liked those. And eventually we started showing them some of his videos and they watched his video on the holiness of God and his videos on that. And they watched some of his videos on um, called Dust to Glory. And these are all videos that he was taping back in the 1980s, right? And he was still a smoker then. Um, and so he was thin. He smoked, I know. You'll have to get over that. So he was smoking. And, uh, and so he was kind of thin. Um, and he is 1980s, so he was much younger. He was probably in his mid to late 40s or something. Um, and he was teaching these series, and they're, they're quite good, and my kids were used to seeing that. So, um, I don't know, in the last maybe six, seven years ago, eight years ago, I came to my kids and I said, you have to see this sermon I just watched by R.C. Sproul. It's great. And so I go to put the video up on the television, and it's a recent sermon. It's a recent sermon. Well, 30 years have passed almost, right, since the videos they saw, and he gave up smoking and took up potato chips. And... <laughs> That's, that's actually not a joke. That's true. <laughs> that's a true statement. The guys I know who, I know some people who know him. I don't know him, but I know some people who know him. They said, he, you never found him without potato chips. So, so my kids see him. I turn on the video, start watching him preach, and they say, who's that? I said, that's R.C. Sproul. And I'll never forget, my son says, what happened to him? <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> time. <laughs> He's a mutable creature. 
the mutable creature. We all know that experience. We know. We look at our old pictures and we think, what happened to me, right? But the Son is the eternal and immutable creator. The angels change their creatures. We change. We become. He does not change. There was once when I was not a husband. There was once when I was not a father. There was once when I was not 6'5", right? Thank, my mom thanks God for that. There was, there was once when I was not a 45-year-old man, but a much younger man. I change. We change. We become. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning with him. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Humanity, you know, we, we humans can do marvelous things, glorious things, can't we? We, we can make glorious art and music. We can build magnificent structures and buildings, write incredible poetry and novels, and we could just go down the list of the amazing achievements we see from human beings. However, even the best of what we do is finite and limited and changeable. Further, even the best of what we create is us working with already given materials. The painter is provided with the paint and the brushes and the canvas. He doesn't create that stuff out of nothing. Our greatest artists are rearranging the stuff that already is. The art he doesn't make doesn't or that he makes the art he makes doesn't even last forever. It fades. It changes. We're a mist. A vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, we will grow sick, things will change, everything will break down, we will die. And here's the thing, there is no security ultimately in change and decomposition is there. The psalmist who Hebrews is quoting, knew this. Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 102. Why don't you you look there? Because I want you to see the occasion of this psalm that he quotes from. Psalm 102. Jason read from it already this morning, um, but I want to look at it briefly again just to emphasize the occasion of this psalm. I'm not going to exposit this entire psalm for you. I just want you to see the occasion on which he reflects on God as the eternal and immutable creator. Now notice a prayer. Notice the superscription. I've told you guys this before. You have those bold letters next to Psalm 102, probably something that says, do not hide your face from me. That comes from your translators who put this Bible together. But if you look below that, you see a superscription that says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. That is part of the original text of the psalm. That is telling you, in this case, the very clear occasion of this psalm. What is this psalm? 
It's a song that is a prayer of one who is afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now listen to what he pours out. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. You ever been so afflicted that you just have to be fed? You can forget to eat? Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. Just alone in the wilderness. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. That is, you, you're so dismayed. You see your life coming unraveled. You're crying out to the point that you can't sleep and you can't eat and you feel utterly alone. You can feel that way in the company of a whole bunch of people. All, verse 8, all the days my enemies taunt me, those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Now he's going to go in and sing the Lord's praise, but I, I want to go forward. Jump down to verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. In other words, in the middle of my life, he's suddenly cutting it off. My life is coming to an end in what seems to me to be premature. He's broken my strength in mid-course. Like, I'm not at the end of this race yet, but he's bringing it to an end. He's shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away. In the midst of my days, you whose years endure forever, or endure throughout all generations. In other words, Lord, take me not away. Give me more days. You endure forever. You can do it. Now listen, of old... Or in the beginning, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years will have or have no end. The children, therefore, because that's true, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. He is suffering, the psalmist is. He is fading. He is dying. He has no hope in himself in that situation, but God is eternal. God does not change. God is not temporal. He is not a creature. His days cannot be shortened. He is the eternal and immutable creator, and thus the psalmist turns to the Lord when he recognizes the mutability 
and weakness and dependence and neediness of being the creature. He turns to the creator who is eternal and immutable. When we're suffering, when we are watching things change in a way that we hate, let's face it, that's what's happening. Something has changed in a way that we hate, thus suffering. And when we feel terribly unsettled, in the midst of that, we have an eternal and immutable creator in whom we trust. Now please hear me. These perfections of God, we call them attributes or perfections of God, are no comfort to us apart from Christ, apart from the Son. But rather, apart from the Son, they're an occasion for terrifying dread. If, only, if we only know the Lord as this eternal and immutable creator, apart from salvation in Christ, these doctrines are no comfort to us. Apart from Christ, we are sinful men. And God is represented to us as the one who is immutably and eternally opposed to us in his holy justice and wrath. Look at Hebrews 10 and look at Hebrews 10 and drop down to verse 31 as he warns people who reject Christ, who reject the Son, who trample underfoot the blood of the covenant, who trample underfoot really the Son of God. Verse 31 of Hebrews 10. Notice the language. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here, in this text, his eternity, the fact that he has life in himself, that he is the living God, is presented to us as a fearful thing. Why is God's eternity fearful to us? Because it is our everlasting punishment and dread if we've rejected the Son. God's being and character considered by us in our sinful estate is our dread. His righteousness, listen, His righteousness apart from Christ is His holy hatred of all sin by which all men stand condemned. And it is also His faithfulness to execute divine judgment upon all sinners. So his righteousness is not good news apart from Christ. His power, the power by which he created, is his mightiness to carry out all his just judgment upon sinners. Not good news apart from Christ. His eternity and immutability is his fixed an unchanging punishment of sinners forever apart from Christ. You see, the character of God, the perfections of God, that's not good news if you're not in Christ. It's terrifying news. You mean the God who created all things and is sovereign over all of them is opposed to me? Yes. 
And you mean that he's opposed to me in such a way that his righteousness hates my sin and doesn't just hate sin, Psalm 5, go read it, but hates sinners because sin is not something outside of me. It's something I do. He doesn't cast sin into hell. He casts sinners into hell. That he's opposed to me in his righteous judgment and his power means that he has the ability to carry out all his just judgments. His righteousness means that he will faithfully execute all of his just judgments. His eternality and immutability means he will never ever relent from carrying out his justice. That is terrible news for me. Yes, apart from Christ, it's terrible news. Now look again at Hebrews 1 and verse 10. And catch the importance of this word, and. And not as a contrast, but and of the Son, he says. And of the Son, he says. God spoke in Psalm 102 to the Son in this text that we've, we've quoted. With that word, and, we are reminded that God spoke this to the Son. We know Him. We know the Son. We know the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal and immutable creator as he saves us. We know him as he saves us in the Son. The Father, in love, decreed to send the Son as our mediator to purchase grace for us. And to send the Holy Spirit to unite us to Christ through faith. That we may know him. Not as the God who is everlastingly, immutably, powerfully, righteously opposed to us. But we know him as the God who eternally loves us and seeks our good. As the God who is our everlasting reward. John Owen rightly says that believers now consider God in the work of his son for us. Now listen to what he says. He says this, we consider his power as he is mighty to save. Not his power as he is mighty to judge and execute justice upon us, but his power as he is mighty to save. His eternity as he is an everlasting reward. His righteousness as faithful to justify us. All his properties as engaged in covenant for our good and our advantage. Whatever he is in himself, that he will be to us in a way of mercy. Hear that? Whatever he is in himself, that he will be to us in a way of mercy. Thus do the holy properties of the divine nature become a means of support unto us as considered in the person of the Son of God. See, thus in the Son, our God being mighty to create, being eternal, and being immutable is good news for us. So let me provide two applications. Third point, two applications. They'll come kind of quickly. First, our Lord can make all things new precisely because He made all things. He can make all things new precisely because He made all things. Look at Hebrews 1.12. Speaking of the creation, Hebrews 1.12. Like a robe, you 
will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. In other words, it's, it's, it's as if, as if the, the creation's clothes are being changed. That, that the Son, Jesus, the man who walked among us, who was born of the virgin, who walked among us, who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, who performed miracles, who cared for his friends, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead on the third day, who ascended to the right hand. Jesus is going to take the whole of creation, that's the way it's speaking here, and roll it up. Like a robe, he's going to change its clothes. He's talking about. As the creator of all things, he can and will make all things new. We know that things are not the way they're supposed to be, don't we? No one stands over a coffin and thinks this is the way it should be. No one sits in a hospital next to someone in the bed dying of some whatever and thinks this is how it ought to be. No one. No one sees a child harmed or a dictator oppressing his people and thinks this is the way it's supposed to be. No one. No one sees a marriage and a divorce, an orphan left by their parents and thinks this is the way it's supposed to be. No one. We know that things are not supposed to be this way. So we long for that day when all things will be made new. We long for that. As Christians, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection, as the beginning of the new creation. And we know that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Yet, while that is true of us, though we be in Christ, we shall live and never die in the eternal sense. We are still like pilgrims or sojourners traveling through the wilderness of this present world, longing for that city, that promised land, that garden whose architect and builder is God. Look, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 11 lays this down quite clearly about the way the Old Testament saints did. But look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Hear that, believers? You have come to Mount Zion, the holy city, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering. There they are in festal gathering as you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to God's city. And to the assembly of the firstborn. In other words, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prototokos, the, the supreme one over all things who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, so you've come to that city. It's yours. But now listen. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. And this is talking about at Mount Sinai. His voice shook the earth in the Exodus account. 
But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you hear what he's saying here? You're already citizens of that heavenly city, but there's a day coming for the shaking of all things. In other words, the judgment of all this present creation and the coming of the new heavens and new earth. There's a day coming for that. And you're members of that kingdom that cannot be shaken. All of this will be shaken out, but you're members of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we look forward to that day. Now look what he says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, verse 28, that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Listen, I don't have time to break all that down. Here's the point. We're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. When there will be no more sin, suffering, sorrow, and death. Our Lord Jesus Christ created all that we see, and thus he is the one who is powerful to bring in the new creation. So we listen to his word, and we worship him with reverence and awe. Further, second application, as the eternal and immutable Lord, his promise is to seek our everlasting good. His promise to seek our everlasting good, to be our great reward, that's an immutable promise. It's unchangeable. Jesus is the eternal God. Therefore, he shall remain our prophet forever. His word is always true and will enlighten us for eternity. Will all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, what? Remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He shall remain our king forever. His throne and kingdom are everlasting. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He shall remain our priest forever. His sacrifice is once for all. He is ever making intercession for us after making purification for sins. He made purification for our sins. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 7, speaking of his eternality and immutability with regard to our salvation. Listen to this in verse 21. But this one, speaking of the Son, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord cannot change his mind. And he will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. That's a quotation from Psalm 110. This makes him the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hear that? 
His sacrifice is once for all, and he is always living to make intercession for you. Always. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king for eternity, and he is immutably so. That's why it can be declared of him, the heavens will be wrapped up like a garment and they'll be changed, but you, you the Son, are the same. You're the same. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. There is no shadow of turning with him. That means your hope is secure. It's as secure as the Lord is eternal and immutable and powerful to save. That's why the psalmist, knowing his own death is approaching, turns to the God who is eternal and immutable. You see, I begin, you begin. I experience a succession of moments. I change. The Lord has no beginning and no ending. He does not experience a succession of moments. He does not change, and that's good news for us. John Bunyan, who struggled with the assurance of salvation, you can see that in the Pilgrim's Progress, book one anyway, book two, is about his wife who didn't seem to struggle with that as much as him. But you can see that there, and you can see it in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is his autobiography um, that he tells about his own conversion. Um, he speaks of what coming to understand the immutability of the Son meant for him. So he says, one day as I was passing into the field, he was on a trip somewhere, and he's passing the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Here's the sentence. Your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made me made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed, my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home, in Christ my Lord. Now Christ was all my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. And Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our righteousness, our Savior, our Lord, and he does not change. And that is good news for us. Good news for us. Let me pray. Father, we ask That we would understand that your son has inherited the name that is above all names. That he is your son. That he is our Savior and our Lord. That he who was with you in the beginning, he who is eternally begotten of the Father, equal in power and glory. 
that he was sent by you, Father, that he willingly came and took humanity to himself. Without change, he lived among us, kept the law in our place, paid our penalty at the cross, and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and ushering in the new creation. We're thankful that you crowned him with glory, that you poured your spirit out upon him, and that he has poured that spirit out upon us, his church, so that the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth so that we're united to your Son through faith, by the working of your Spirit, through the proclamation of your Word. We pray that we would continue as a body to look to him. Our eternal prophet and priest and king, our eternal and immutable creator, the one who made all things and who will make all things new, our Lord and Savior, even your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.